0: Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today.
1: Hi again, friends. This is Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. I'm your host, Don Payne. And before we get underway with this episode, I need to let you know that this conversation is going to address some pretty sensitive issues that might get a bit too close to home or Maybe spark some trauma for some. We're going to be talking about sexual abuse and the church. So I just wanted to let you know in advance, in case this topic is too raw or too painful, we're committed to having the tough conversations that we need to have in order for the redemptive power of the gospel to be specific and to be connected to where it's most needed. But we don't want to prompt or maybe resuscitate any unnecessary struggles. So if this or any of the issues we address on the podcast happen to intersect your personal journey in a way that you're just not in a place to engage right now, you may want to take a break for this episode. And I also encourage you to seek out whatever uh, professional assistance you you might need. And if we can help point you to some of that assistance, please let us know. Sadly, uh, one of the... One of the issues that plagues the church these days is sexual abuse. And as difficult and egregious as this is, uh, we need to address it. Uh, That's part of what we're here for at Denver Seminary and part of what this podcast is about, to um, train people to uh, engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel. And those needs are, are many. But we're really honored today to have as our guest Kimberly Norris, Uh, who is an attorney, and she is the co-founder of an organization called Ministry Safe. Uh, Kimberly is a partner in the Fort Worth, Texas law firm of Love and Norris. Uh, They provide child sexual abuse expertise to ministries around the world. Uh, After representing victims of child sexual abuse for uh, more than 20 years, uh, Kimberly and her husband Gregory Love saw recurring predictable patterns in predatory behavior and so their organization Ministry Safe grew out of a desire to place this information into the hands of ministry professionals and provide churches of all sizes with some effective safety protocols to protect the church and its children from these devastating impacts of child sexual abuse and i think Ministry Safe uh, has trained over 11,000 Ministry personnel or does train over eleven thousand each month in various formats, live and on uh, live and online. Kimberly, welcome to Engage Three Hundred and Sixty. We're glad to have you here.
0: Thanks. Happy to be here.
1: I guess as we get started, maybe we need to define some terms for the sake of clarity. Can you can you help us um, clarify what we mean or should mean by terms like sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual harassment?
0: Sure. So, uh, sexual abuse uh, from a legal standpoint refers to child sexual abuse, so an adult sexually abusing a child or an uh, another child sexually abusing a child, peer-to-peer issues. Um, sexual assault from a legal standpoint is typically adult-to-adult behaviors. So, uh, any non-consensual sexual interaction is a crime. I mean, if somebody's forced to have sexual interaction with someone, mm-hmm. but adult adult behaviors, sexual assault, sexual harassment is typically a circumstance, uh, in the workplace. So an individual is, um, forced to endure inappropriate sexual interaction in some form or, um, any, uh, context in which, um, because of their gender, they are discriminated against in the workplace. Hmm.
1: Maybe it would be helpful for listeners to have just a little bit of background of how you and your husband got, got involved in this through your legal practice. What? Sure. Go ahead.
0: So this is year 31 for me in this realm, mm. addressing child sexual abuse issues. Um, So, if we are actually in the courtroom, it's in a tiny little context, and that is uh, we are representing a victim in a circumstance where a child has been sexually abused while his or her parents were participating in a cult, and the abuser was in spiritual authority over that family. Okay. So, in other words, the abuser used that context to essentially fish for kids. Mm. Hmm. as we litigated in this realm, we began to see patterns in predatory behavior to the, to the degree that when the phone calls come today, uh, we can essentially finish the story for the individual who's calling looking for legal representation. Um, so the, the standards of care are identical in Christ-based environments. And what I mean by that is what was allowed to occur that should not have been allowed What should have been in place to protect that child from inappropriate sexual interaction? Those are standards of care, and uh, they're identical in Christ-based environments. And um, some five or six, seven years in, we began to receive phone calls from some pretty significant ministries, some of which were international in scope. To help them address circumstances where child sexual abuse had occurred and essentially the train had left the tracks so um, we do what we do in part because we're believers and um, we do this work in a lot of different realms one of my more significant secular clients is the US Olympic Committee hmm. who retained us to help create safe sport protocols that we created ministry safe to create access points for christian ministries to address child sexual abuse and uh, child protection um, prevent child sexual abuse more effectively uh, in the church in christian ministries christian camps christian schools
1: well i'm really grateful for the work you're doing on that it is it safe to say that that the church and And ministry organizations in general are kind of late to the game and paying attention to this, or is everybody late to the game?
0: Uh, A little bit of both. I mean, I think the church, and I'm saying that I'm using capital C, the church universe, tends to be behind the ball as it relates to this risk. And that's in part because we're not licensed. I don't think we should be licensed. I don't want any more government in my life. And I certainly don't want the government telling my church how to run its business. Um, But at the same time, because we're not licensed, we don't have continuing education requirements. Typically, we don't have licensure standards of care that we have to comply with. Uh, And so we tend to be behind the ball. We're also uniquely susceptible to child sexual abuse risk because we're grace based. You know, we say "come as you are." No perfect people. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that was before he knew Jesus. Hmm. Um, we tend, we don't have a great understanding of how the risk might manifest, and because we don't have a great understanding, and we don't tend to do it, but we're never going to be accidentally excellent at this
1: in the <laughs> church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love that phrase. Um, it does that mean then that that sexual abuse of various types, uh, whether we're talking about abuse or assault or even harassment, I guess, for those who consider the church as their workplace, is there a difference in how prevalent that is within the church? Uh, I know we'd have to broad brush here a little bit, but is there a difference between how prevalent it is in the church compared to um, other organizations, other environments?
0: Um, So my area of expertise is child sexual abuse, so I can't really speak to -to adult-to-adult behaviors or even sexual harassment for purposes from a a level of uh, expertise, Uh, but I would say in general, child sexual abuse is not any more common in the church than it is elsewhere, except that um, we know that abusers who—preferential offenders, and I'll define that for you in a minute— but. Preferential offenders who prefer a child as a sexual partner, almost without exception, have an age and gender of preference that they prefer to interact with. And because we gather kids in large numbers in a lot of churches and ministry programs, we become an attractive target for the preferential offender. And the majority of offenders, not all, but the majority that are that, you know, you're seeing media coverage about and. Uh, significantly impacting church public perception of ministry programs tend to be preferential offenders who um, have uh, who repeat their offenses over and over again. They have many, many victims. So because we are grace based, because we don't tend to question people's motivation about why they want to serve, because we're heavily volunteer driven in many ministries Um, We assume that people's motivations are appropriate when sometimes they're not. And we don't, as I say, we don't recognize predatory behavior when we encounter it. Therefore, um, we become uniquely susceptible in some sense. I don't think the statistical prevalence is higher than it is in other child-serving contexts. Okay. But most other child-serving contexts understand reporting requirements, understand standards of care. and that is not the case commonly in the church.
1: Okay, so so it sounds like there are uh, there are some senses in which the conditions are ripe uh, within a lot of church settings because of the underregulated um, underlicensed uh, or lack of licensure and just the the gathering of of children in these spaces. It, it's, yeah. it's more of a ripe, ripe environment for it to happen in some ways.
0: I think that's true. Um, I mean, to be frank, the church in general, and there are notable exceptions. I mean, I'll correct a couple of your stats. We train about 50,000 ministry staff members per month, and okay. we tipped up our 2 million mark last month. Wow, wow. So we're, we're making a dent, um, but the church— tends to be pretty um, untrained and uninformed about how child sexual abuse might come about so a big part of the training that we undertake addresses the grooming process of the abuser how the abuser selects specific children how the abuser prepares a child for inappropriate sexual interaction uh, how they Introduce sexual touch through barrier testing and erosion, how they keep the child silent after the fact, and the reality that uh, molesters, almost without exception, groom the gatekeepers. So they groom the ministry leaders, they groom parents to believe that they're helpful, trustworthy, responsible people. And that is because what every preferential offender needs is trusted time alone with your kids. And you're not. You're not going to create that opportunity for someone that you don't deem to be trustworthy. Um, so that's why when these ministry scenarios hit the news, you almost always hear, "I'm so shocked." Right. Sometimes you hear, "Sometimes you hear, I don't believe it." Because because, the,
1: because those who've done the grooming are are have have great facility at what they're doing. Correct. Right? No. I, it, it'd be good, I think to have you talk a little bit more about that. I'd wanted to have you address that grooming process anyway. And uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with that term or that concept of grooming. So if you don't mind, uh, go back, go back through some of that and say a little more about those. Sure. uh, About about that grooming
0: process. So uh, I'll start with this. Most people's understanding of child sexual abuse risk revolves around the concept of stranger danger and you know we came by it honestly because the government addressed this back in the 50s and 60s and uh, taught us as a generation uh, that strangers were the dangerous component for children where sexual abuse is concerned it was in cartoons back in the day Um, But the reality is 90% of kids who are sexually abused are abused by someone there that they know and trust. It is not, Mm. it is someone inside the proverbial fence. Okay. So the first part of the grooming process is gaining access and preferential offenders who is the primary danger to the church um, have prolific offense rates and they're gonna gravitate toward career and volunteer opportunities related to children who are within their age and gender of preference. So they groom the gatekeepers. They're pretty good at figuring out what kids want, but let's be frank, uh, you're probably a parent. Did your, do your kids want anything? And how how shy are they about communicating what they want? Yeah. Um, so, They're good at figuring out what kids want or need. They're giving it to them. They're skilled at kind of peer-like communication with kids. Um, Once they've targeted uh, specific children who are within their age and gender of preference, they select a specific, specific child or a number of children that tends to be a child who's unconnected or on the fringe or in need in some way. Uh, It can be a child who's looking for someone to follow or trust or a child from a broken family or a single parent home. Uh, It can be a child who's already involved in alcohol or drugs, which is just a a real tool for the offender because both alcohol and drugs lower inhibitions. Mm -hmm. Uh, They muddy the water about what actually happened. Sometimes the child doesn't even know what happened because he or she is impaired. Um, It can be a child already interested in pornography or sex, and a child interested in sex is any child past a certain age because that's natural human development. Um, The molester will introduce nudity and sexual touch as uh, the third element of the grooming process. Um, So they'll figure out what a child will accept now in terms of touch, in terms of conversation, in terms of subject matters, and then by repeated exposure, they'll push back what that child will accept. And that's always going to, molesters tend to be touchy with kids, uh, which is a reason why uh, churches should have bright line policies in place about physical touch with kids in the program. This is okay, not very clearly defined. Yeah, good. But they'll interject um, sexual discussion and joking as part of this. Uh, they're kind of judging interest. Are you interested? Will you tell? Um, they'll incorporate playful touch, like pantsing, wrestling, tickling, roughhousing, those kinds of behaviors in order to push back physical ba- uh, barriers or boundaries. And they tend to uh, introduce nudity in some form, whether quote unquote accidentally or by creating a culture where nudity is acceptable or cool in some form. Um, Once sexual touch has occurred, the last part of the grooming process is keeping the victim silent. So that's commonly um, secrecies woven into the entire process. The molesters giving that child stuff, giving them access to things, giving them privileges, Giving them access to things their parents won't let them do, for instance. Um, they use shame and embarrassment to shame a child into silence.
1: Can you, can you give us an example of that? What what kinds of things do they say?
0: Sure. To silence um, kids. Yeah. So little kids, younger kids, don't know that bodies have predictable physiological response to sexual touch. Predictable response. Mm-hmm. But younger kids don't know that yet, and nor should they, because that's not uh, at the age of development that they are. But molesters will use that predictable physiological response to shame a child into silence. Hmm. Things like you participated, your body responded, I think you liked it, those sorts of things. Okay. Um, the number one reason kids don't tell. Uh, in every study for the last 20 some odd 30 years if I tell no one's going to believe me and molesters will tell a child if you tell nobody's going to believe you do you think they're going to believe you or me I'm going to tell them that you're lying and you'll get in trouble for lying and oh by the way you tried the beer you tried the alcohol you participated too i might get in trouble but you will too Hmm. so they'll threaten a child into silence no one's going to believe you if you tell this would hurt your mother this would wreck our youth group um so they'll use that to uh keep a child silent after the fact um as well there's some real uh, regular common grooming behaviors that we talk about in all our trainings that all should be included in and addressed in policies and procedures um so these are all ways in which the church can respond more appropriately than what we currently do okay that's
1: really really helpful mm-hmm. um i i think you may have mentioned this a little bit earlier something about power structures or power abuse in mm-hmm. the church how does how does all of that play a role in this
0: Well, I think the biggest way in which I encounter it playing a role, having the kind of interaction that I have regularly with uh, ministry leaders, is ministry leaders are groomed as gatekeepers. So they drink the Kool-Aid. They believe this person, Hmm. typically. Um, And they don't understand this risk, typically. They don't know how it would come about. They don't understand the grooming process. They don't understand that probably don't even know about the existence of the preferential offender. Um, Sometimes it is not so much a power paradigm so much as it is a pastoral um, framework where uh, a pastor has a pastor's heart and wants to provide ministry services to everyone. And there are some people who shouldn't be in our churches, not next to kids. Hmm. Not working with kids. Um, So I think that is a a dynamic that occurs over and over again. Occasionally, if it's a male who's molesting a female child and the female was a early to mid-teen, there's some sexism that comes into play where the uh, interaction is characterized as an affair rather than child sexual abuse. Hmm. So there's that element occasionally as well. Hmm.
1: You're you're reminding me of how, in so many cases, in the church, this is perhaps true everywhere, but particularly in these cases, our our greatest assets have uh, um, have a soft underbelly. They <laughs> they have a uh, a set of come along weaknesses with them. So the the grace that is at the basis of the church uh, sometimes creates the environment where things can go unattended that can be really toxic and really dangerous and likewise uh, for many ministry leaders who have a what you call a pastor's heart uh, that can be that can be played to, that can be um, manipulated in some ways.
0: Sure. and that's particularly true when I mean part of what we try to do in every training we undertake is we want to at an absolute minimum, give ministry staff members and volunteers a different category for the behavior they might encounter okay because a lot of people don't even have the category they just think, yeah, well, they that would- don't even know it's a thing yeah that was odd that seems strange That was weird I don't know why that was going on or why he was doing that so a lot of abusers fly under the radar because people don't have eyes to see hmm. and the good news for the church, is that uh, the grooming process is viewable. Common grooming behaviors are viewable. And if it's viewable, it's subject to supervision. And if it's subject to supervision, it's preventable.
1: Okay. Yeah, you're giving me some hope now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, thus far, I think if, um, uh, you know, many of our listeners might be thinking, Gee, I'm never going to let my kids go to church again. <laughs> this is um, this is not worth the risk. But uh, you obviously have uh, training and expertise that uh, can give churches hope and some tools to work with. Uh, I loved your phrase, "the bright lines mm-hmm. uh, that can be drawn." So, uh, turn us in that direction, if you would, and and give us some uh, just a few tips or some general directions on how churches can begin to prevent and combat this kind of uh, child sexual abuse?
0: Sure. So we believe that the solution starts with training. And um, you know, training's got to address the grooming process of the abuser. It's got to correct misconceptions like stranger danger. Um, when uh, When I get called into a scenario that's catastrophic in a ministry setting um, I I always ask, what did you have here to protect? And what I hear about are criminal background checks. And you know, we got to, you have to do it. It's a, it is a uh, standard of care, but it's not the standalone safety system or silver bullet that the church tends to think it is.
1: Uh, and then that and that alone might be the the big learning for many listeners in many churches. Uh, sure. that that, okay. that that does not that only goes so far.
0: Yeah, less than 10% of abusers will encounter the criminal justice system ever. Department mm. of Justice a couple of years ago said less than 3%. Wow. That's in part because two out of three kids don't tell, even today. That's in part because uh, adults minimize. That's in part because families say, we're just going to handle this within the family, et cetera, et cetera. If, you, if it's not reported, it's not going to be prosecuted. Right. Um, so the, what we think gets it done uh, is what we call the five-part safety system, and it starts with training, sexual abuse awareness training, looks at the grooming process, looks at common grooming behaviors, corrects misconceptions like stranger danger, like uh, we have a criminal background check in place, like as if that was a, you know, recommendation, um, and um, addresses the reporting requirements. Here's what's required in uh, every state related to reporting child abuse uh, and neglect. The second part of the safety system that we advocate is what we call skillful screening. But what it is is effective screening processes. So asking the right questions, training, uh, screening staff members, managerial personnel, anybody who's gonna hire or fire people should understand uh, male and female offender characteristics. And we know a whole lot about male and female offenders in the convicted population because 98 percent of them participate in offender studies hmm. and they do that because if they don't they can't get probation okay so, so we know a lot about offenders and we know uh, we train people how to ask the right questions that would reveal uh, high-risk responses um, the third part would be a criminal background check fourth would be policies and procedures, and that goes back to those bright line expressions. Mm -hmm. This is okay. This is not very clearly defined, particularly as it relates to touch, but other policy expressions as well. And then the last part is supervision. It's the two adult rule. It's having ratios in place. It's um, unscheduled drop-ins. Supervision and oversight, doing what you say you do in order to properly supervise children in ministry programs.
1: That's really helpful, Kimberly, and, and really gives us some specifics on how the, uh, the church can, in fact, be a safe place. Yeah. Um, what about in those instances where sexual abuse within the church has already occurred, it's been brought to light? Uh, what guidance can you give for how churches can uh, support the abused and support the families, uh, where this occurs.
0: So first and foremost, uh, report, I know your state reporting requirements. So it starts with that. Um, it, you know, if, if, if it's not reported, no accountability occurs. And just from the get go, uh, more kids are going to be abused by the same abuser and that's inadequate accountability or support for the victim himself or herself. The report, um, secondly avoid any circumstance where the victim is supposed to forgive the abuser in any sort of short order a lot of churches will try to get individuals in the same room and have the abuser apologize to the victim and that's supposed to make it okay huh. that that's cheap forgiveness yeah it is uh, compounding the abuse in my opinion Um, And again, this starts with an understanding. This is it it is almost never a one time deal. So churches, church leaders will listen to the abuser say, this is the only time this has ever happened. It'll never happen again. I'm so repentant. I'm so contrite. I would just like to say I'm sorry. And then Christian charity comes into play. And that's just compounding the damage because it's cheap forgiveness. Um, So, you know. Understanding what uh, um, supportive resources are available in your geographic area is important. Creating a string of skilled licensed professional counselors to whom the church can refer people. You know, looking to see what resources are available online in national context, what are available locally in order to support abuse survivors. These are all good ideas. Uh, my experience in this realm is that, uh, you know, obviously this isn't first and foremost about not being sued, but my experience is ministries get sued because of how they treat people after they come forward.
1: Interesting. I, I really appreciate the the specificity uh, of all of this because that really does give hope. Uh, and you know, a, sh- a shout out here to the churches who really are doing it well, who've done their homework and have taken this seriously. And I think you you probably know far better than I do some of those churches that have have done a really good job of trying to put in place the protocols and um, the the procedures that they need to keep uh, keep people safe. And just want to recognize that those are out there. Sure. and and there there are folks who have really taken this seriously and are and are doing it well and i appreciate the the guidance you've given the encouragement for churches who need to think more seriously about this it um, well, also go ahead
0: a shout, a shout out as well to the seminaries who are getting in the game hmm. so i'm i'm faculty at, at Dallas Theological Seminary mm-hmm. i teach a class on every spring on preventing child sexual abuse in ministry contexts um, Denver Seminary, your institution is hosting some training events and, that are available online. So yeah, there. I think that this issue has become uh, such a, a, a big framer of public perception. There's been so much media coverage. There's been so many issues that are framing congregational perception. Um, that lots of ministries, some are doing it because they're trying to avoid the bad press, but others are being proactive rather than reactive. And that's exciting to see. That was not always the case.
1: Yeah, it really is. And you know, you've mentioned a couple of things that would probably be uh, fodder for another (laughs) few conversations theologically when you've you've mentioned how grace um, or our perceptions of grace, uh, forgiveness, forgiveness, what it means to have a pastor's heart. Those are theological themes that need a much deeper dive. Uh, they need a far deeper reflection on what do we mean by grace. Because, I mean, it's, it's very easy. I, I see this. You probably have as well, that, that the grace card gets played uh, fairly glibly. Um, and, he, and it basically equates to, well, we're just going to let somebody off the hook. We'll All just right. turn a blind eye to something because, you know, we want to be graceful. And mm-hmm. we, we've got to do some deeper theological thinking about whether that really is what grace means. And, and forgiveness, likewise. Uh, what does it really mean to forgive beyond simply owning something or saying that one is sorry? Sure. Uh, the, these, are, these are thick realities. Yeah. Um, they and need a lot more attention.
0: Exactly. Um, and our children can't pay the cost for our desire to appear gracious.
1: Hmm, that's well put this has mm-hmm. been this has been so helpful sobering, but deeply helpful and we're grateful for the work that you and and your husband are doing and um, grateful to the Lord for everything uh, egregious that has not happened as a result of what you're doing yeah exactly um, that's that's the metric that I guess we'll only know in heaven um, but the Lord knows all the evil that has been avoided because of your efforts and that is considerable and we're just really grateful for it Uh, friends we've been uh, visiting with Kimberly Norris uh, from Fort Worth Texas she and her husband run ministry safe and do incredible work in helping churches know how to protect children so I really encourage you to uh, visit their website and visit our website denverseminary.edu and as Kimberly mentioned we'll be having a webinar here but even if you're listening to this after that webinar takes place you should be able to get back on our website and view that Uh, so we'd really encourage you to do that Kimberly thanks so much yep
0: you're welcome
1: friends if this uh, if you found this helpful or any of our podcasts helpful we really would appreciate it if you would take just a moment and give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform that'd be really helpful to us and let me I uh, request as well that you visit our website for other resources. We've got a stream of really helpful resources on a variety of topics that you can access through denverseminary.edu. And if you'd like to communicate with us here at the podcast, just email us at podcast at denverseminary.edu. So we'll be talking to you again really soon with another relevant topic. And in the meantime, may the Lord uh, bless you and give you uh, good guidance and encouragement in all that he's given you to do. Take care.